it was just so powerful to see that being recognized by the Nobel Committee. The, the power of regular people standing up to the most powerful countries in the world, the richest countries and the biggest military powers in the world and saying, you know what, we, we, can, we can change things with or without you, but we can change things. It's Maria from Cooler Earth, and this is Now What, a special season of our podcast where I'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who are doing the work and being very intentional about how they find new and engaging ways to communicate the challenges we currently face and just as importantly, the opportunities, ways forward and reasons for hope. This week on the podcast, we're doing things a little different in that our guest does not work in the climate field. Um, our guest today is Beatrice Finn. She is the executive director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2016 for its work in highlighting the humanitarian cost and consequences of nuclear weapons. The reason I wanted to speak with Beatrice is that first, she's an incredible woman. Uh, the work that she has been able to achieve in leading ICANN is really beyond impressive. Uh, but also because once again this year, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has identified the two most existential threats facing humankind as being climate change and nuclear weapons. Um, being able to speak with someone leading the charge on one of those issues and who's mobilized campaigners and governments all over the world for the cause of the elimination of nuclear weapons uh, is extremely valuable. So I really hope you enjoy the conversation today. So hi, Beatrice, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. It is great to have you on. No, I'm sorry I'm late because I, I forgot that I had to be at a computer. I thought I could do it over the phone, but then I realized that I had to go back to the office, uh, back home and, and um, get the computer. <laughs> no worries. We can get right into it. Um, can you start by telling me a little bit about yourself, your career path, and what led you to the role that you have today? Yeah, um, well, my name is Beatrice, um, Swedish, living in Switzerland. Um, I guess I, I mean, I have always been very interested in international issues, and in particular issues on justice and equality. And I didn't really set out to work on nuclear weapons. It kind of just fell on me, <laughs> way. Um, so it was much more that I wanted to sort of work on international issues, uh, international law, the UN system, multilateralism. I was very fascinated by the UN when I studied uh, at university. And I studied political science, international relations and international law. And I got an internship with an organization. Um, and they said, oh, do you want to work? If you work, you should. Um, the internship is about nuclear weapons. And I remember being even a little bit disappointed because I was like, oh, I want to do human rights or something else. Um, because I figured, I thought nuclear weapons was just an outdated issue. Are they even, do they even exist anymore? Um, but getting exposed to the issue and starting to think about it, I just got really fascinated. It just seemed, you know, it was both so huge of an issue and then also completely, you know, in our heads. It's such a conceptual issue, um, and it is an expression of inequality and injustice and uh, mis or abuse of power to have nuclear weapons. This kind of threat that 
we somehow accepted for some countries but not for others and it can literally kill us all yet we pretend like it's rational and sane and the kind of contradictions there that we've you know the conclusions that we've drawn is just that this is this is a weapon that you know it's acceptable when it's completely in our power to change it and i think it, it shares a lot of um, similar things with climate change like the enormity of it the fact that if you know it's a global issue it's the the consequences would not stop at borders right it, it would spread to others which means that we all have a shared interest and a joint responsibility for the issue you can't just say well i don't have nuclear weapons so it's not my problem in the same way you can say like you can't say that well i'm not polluting so it's not my problem because it will spread it will impact us all and yeah, and it's it's this kind of existential issues that we. But what a differ the difference is that you know nuclear weapons is a weapon, whereas climate change has been you know it it's not um it's a kind of a byproduct of a society, uh, but it's not um whereas this is a big bomb that we built, and and it's it's so solvable and it will be solvable in a way that doesn't have to actually impact our behavior very much. We could just remove these weapons and we would remove an existential threat quite easily. Climate change is in a way easier because everyone can do something. So it's, it has a motivational issue that nuclear weapons doesn't have, but at the same time, solving climate change is going to require a, change of how we live and how we operate and and how we you know the decisions we made in this world uh, it's going to be a bigger transition and a bigger change in society whereas nuclear weapons we can just get rid of them and the world will be pretty much exactly the same way just not with this existential threat ha hanging over us right and the way icon has gone about trying to achieve that is through the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons can you tell me about the process and the campaign that has led to the treaty, which now I believe has 22 uh, ratifications? Yeah, I mean, the treaty is a tool. Um, it's not the kind of ultimate solution that is going to fix all of our problems regarding nuclear weapons. But what we identified was one of the big challenges was that there wasn't an international consensus that these weapons are bad. There was a lot of exceptions and there was a lot of different rules for different countries. We are very concerned about North Korea, but we're not too concerned about France nuclear weapons. Uh, they are the rational, stable ones, whereas all the other countries in the Middle East are irrational, unstable, and are, would be more dangerous with nuclear weapons. So there's this kind of like apartheid regime in the international society where we, where we we distinguish between different countries and different rules applies to different countries. So what we wanted to do was to create a law that was equal uh, as not as the, that that would solve it, but that would be a starting point for uh, undoing this 70 years long brainwashing that these weapons are acceptable. So the treaty is really meant to draw a line and say that these weapons are unacceptable. Uh, and from there, start pushing for change. Um, we see very much international law as leading the change rather than being the uh, the last part of solidifying or putting the regulations in place after the change has happened. We, we use law to drive change. The same way we do it for human rights, for example. 
it's not like we waited until every single human rights violation was over and finished and countries didn't do that and then put the treaties in place. We put them in place to, to set a norm, to set a standard, and then we drag each country up to applying that standard one by one. So that's what we're doing now with these weapons. Um, and the treaty was is really... Uh, it's been quite radical in a way because it's challenging the most powerful countries in the world and saying that your behaviors, it's outliers. Uh, you are the ones who are behaving illegally uh, and doing something wrong. And it's extremely provoking for these countries. Uh, it also puts a spotlight very much on the countries that are don't have nuclear weapons but are complicit. Like the um, military allies of the nuclear armed states. They are the ones who have been able to say, well, it's, we don't have nuclear weapons, we're the good guys, but still support nuclear weapons and, and allow it and facilitate it from happening. In order to change norms and change behavior, um, it's not, you know, it's not the, the violators of it that's always the problem. It's the, the silent people around that allows it from happening and even, even just facilitate it happening. So the treaties are meant in a way to put pressure from the most supportive countries and then move closer and closer to the nuclear arms states and isolate them in their behavior and make it difficult for them to continue. Uh, and that's what we won the Nobel Peace Prize for, uh, for our work to raise awareness of the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons and for the treaty, uh, the role that we had in promoting this treaty. And I have to ask, you accepted the Nobel Peace Prize in 2016 in Oslo on behalf of, of the campaign and the organization. Uh, what was it like receiving that phone call and, and everything that has happened since? And, I mean, it's been amazing. It's been a huge honor. And yeah, and, and just really also so encouraging for, I think, civil society and activists in general. And I really hope that people working on other issues um, take a bit of credit for this as well. I mean, this is something that is bigger than just the nuclear weapons issue. It's regular people taking action. You know, I can't. We're not um, high-level politicians or celebrities or anything like that. We're just regular people who did some stuff together, and it had a huge impact, and it's going to continue to have a huge impact. And I think that's something that people desperately need to remember today, the enormous power of organizing and taking action and activists. It's, it's so often in, in, in the history that, you know, the world leaders get all the credit for decisions that they take. They sign the peace agreement, so they take this decision and they get all the applause. But you kind of ignore all of the activist work, the people who protested before it was politically possible, the people who put their sort of, in some of these causes, their lives at risk to protest injustice and, uh, and, and kind of driving the public opinion and making it, you know, forcing the politicians to act. That very rarely gets attention and very rarely is rewarded with gold medals in a way. So I just, it was just so nice and, and powerful to see that being recognized by the Nobel Committee. The, the power of regular people standing up to the most powerful 
countries in the world, the richest countries and the biggest military powers in the world and saying, you know what, we, we can we can change things with or without you, but we can change things. Yeah, I remember seeing the video when you received the call. I think one of your co-workers filmed your reaction. Um, it was amazing. Yeah, I, I was just giggling. <laughs> I mean, I can't even remember what I was thinking. It was just sort of, this is not happening. I was thinking that it was a joke. It's, you know, he's calling for something else or, and then he said it. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, wow. I remember to picking up my phone and turning off my notifications. <laughs> that that was like something that I, you know, I was like, I think, I think I'm going to get a lot of phone calls and, and, and text messages. So I, I better turn off my phone. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, good thinking on your part. As you said, though, this is an honor that recognized the hard work of civil society and advocates from all over the world. Um, and ICANN is a campaign that has volunteers everywhere, I think in over 100 countries. Uh, so I'm curious to hear your experience in leading such a broad-based campaign and coalition and managing just so many people and such diversity. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely challenging and extremely rewarding at the same time. I mean, the the best thing about doing this kind of work is all the amazing people, and the worst thing is all the amazing other people that you have to deal with. So it's definitely up and down, uh, but mostly in a good way. I mean, it's it's the kind of passion and commitment that people have is for the cause and for the work of the campaign is really remarkable. And it's it's what really gives me a lot of hope that we will be able to do this. We actually had a moment in the before the treaty negotiations started. Uh, we had a a big funder that supported a big project, and then suddenly they cancelled all the funding. And we they they this one funder stood for maybe eighty five ninety percent of our budget, and we were in you know panic. It's like we don't, we're going to have to get rid of all the staff. What are we going to do? We're just about to embark on the process to, to sort of get the treaty negotiated. And the amount of support and, and sort of just really help we got from all of our members, you know, organizations that are member of ICANN stepped in and, and started covering some of the costs here and there. People started fundraising for us. People really, you know, we're not aligned to sort of, because they believed in the campaign. And that that's just really remarkable to, to have and gives me and everyone else a lot of confidence that this is completely possible. And then also, I think one of the things that we've done to, to really make it a successful campaign and to kind of, is you know, we have differences of agreements and it's really difficult sometimes to, to manage such a global and diverse network, but we have a lot of fun and we are celebrating the victories a lot. Um, you know, throwing parties, you know, cheering on every single state that ratified. It doesn't matter if it's Palau, the smaller specific island state, you know, it's a state, right? And someone, they've joined the treaty and that's important and we're going to celebrate and that's an accomplishment. Because getting a really tiny state to dare to stand up against the most powerful, it's a big deal. So we've also used all of this kind of um, the celebrations to build um, a positive momentum, a sort of feeling that we are moving forward, 
we're not shying away from the difficulties, and particularly now with the sort of INF treaty and the US and Russia and North Korea, you know, it's tough times. But I think we all really try to build a community that's positive and that um, has sort of a an, an attitude that, you know, we are moving forward. It's so easy to focus on the negative. And in terms of like comparing it to the climate change, you know, when I'm obviously not working on climate change, but it's something that's extremely on my mind a lot and kind of in a panic state. <laughs> and I've felt very much these last years that I've just felt more and more sort of demoralized, like, oh, it's not how, you know, why isn't anyone doing anything? Why is, you know, and then this report came out, the IPCC report in September, whatever it was. Whereas, like, really, we're screwed. And at first, I was kind of uh, just just feeling very, you know, there's no point of this. Like, let's just burn up the earth and, like, get it over with because we can't, you know, it's gone too far. You get, get this kind of reaction. But seeing the amazing activism that's happening right now on climate change and how people that never spoke about this issue before are suddenly, you know, what do we, we have to do this, we have to do that, and I see some, you know, then you feel part of a winning cause. And I think that's really important for people to feel like it's, and I think that this has, it's a challenge for the climate change issue and the nuclear weapons, the, you know, doomsday scenario, we're all going to die, this is an existential threat. It makes us almost passive. So we have to be very upfront about the risks and what's happening and the dangers, but we can't make people feel like, you know, it's hopeless. Definitely. I think there's an important element of responsibility in this work uh, to inspire action and not simply leave people with a message of hopelessness. Um, That's something we have to deal with in the climate space, too. It's definitely challenging because the problems are so serious and severe, uh, but it's also about giving people agency and conveying the fact that it is our choices that still matter. We're not doomed to any specific destiny or outcome. Exactly. We have to feel empowered to act. Otherwise, we won't. And what I've noticed in ICANN is that it's very much the more victories we have, the more people want to work on the issue. People are, you know, glory supporters. <laughs> they want to join winning campaigns. Uh, I mean, which is natural because there's no lack of urgent issues that need our help and support and resources and, you know, donations and time. So do we want to pour down our souls and our sort of hope and effort into something that isn't going to succeed? No. So... We have to create a sense of, you know, winning, even if things are perhaps going in the wrong direction sometimes. But, you know, what, is, what can we control and can we win the small fights that then will build into a meaningful, bigger, you know, win? Uh, then we, we sort of, we try to kind of scale it down and look at this, the small steps we can win today. And but still connecting it to the bigger fight because you can't you can't you can't uh, completely make up fake wins right? so it has to be meaningful things still but i think it's very important to to get people to feel motivated 
Also on that note, it is very true that the more progress that is made towards a cause, the more backlash it also provokes, at least in the short term. Uh, so while we've seen a massive uptick in activism, this is also causes the opposition to become louder and stronger. Uh, it's true for nuclear weapons and it's true for climate change. Both of these issues and the opposition to them rely heavily on misinformation and the spreads of false narratives around science and facts. I'm curious to know how you and I can in general deals with the emerging challenge of misinformation and the fact that there are powerful economic and political interests behind the opposition to the cause that you champion. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's so frustrating because every day, like now, especially when nuclear weapons is talked about in the news all the time, it's talked about in such a problematic way. Just buying into the narrative of the powerful um, and not questioning the policies so that exist, but just taking them for granted. And it's, it's frustrating. And I feel sometimes there's, um, there's an ins- this um, tendency to look at the worst offenders. So in our case, for example, you know, the P5, North Korea, India, Pakistan, Israel, uh, you know, the nuclear arms states. And you should focus all your efforts on that. And you should, you should change Kim Jong-un's mind or Trump's mind. Whereas I think we have to remember that progress doesn't happen from, they're not going to lead progress, right? They're going to be dragged along with progress, kicking and screaming. Uh, But progress is going to be led by the progressive sort of, so I think we have to be better at stop looking at the negative. And I think the media right now is so obsessed with the negative and also because media is very driven by um, uh, engagement on the internet and people engage much more and react much more and get much more of an emotional reaction to negative news. So that's what's being shared, that's what's being clicked on, that's what's being, and that's what drives the priorities also of the media houses to, to report on it. Whereas feel-good stories, you know, yeah, it's nice, but nobody really engages with it, so it's not so popular. And I think that we have, uh, and that's why I think, again, celebrating the wins and, and, and pushing that out and saying, we're really proud of this. This is really great. This is a sign, in, a step in the right direction. Um, as a way to emphasize that there is this kind of alternative narrative. Right. And that there's something being done about it and great people working towards these ends and goals every day. Yeah, but also to to challenge the kind of establish that everything is going to hell. Like, it's not. Like, it's actually, you know, and then I think that's, I just know, like, I took a break from social media this summer, (laughs) my holiday, and, you know, just like the amount of positive feelings about the world, like, very drastically increased when you don't have this kind of screaming headlines on how disastrous everything is every day. And I think in particular with Trump, for example, it's it's just such an energy suck, right? To every morning, like, so what did he do today? What did he say? And every day, like, this is the worst thing ever he's done. Every day. And it, just, it, it puts you in a mindset of everything being awful. When in fact, and, you know, not because of him, in spite of him, the world is actually better. It's, it's you know, we, you know, we're, we're, we're falling for this kind of, 
online kind of narrative that everything is bad. But if you look at a lot of the statistics in terms of rights, equality, you know, women are more powerful today than ever and have much more of a voice and say in things. It doesn't mean that everything is great. There's still a huge amount of problems. But uh, so when it comes to uh, racism, for example, Black Lives Matter, for example, yes, we see all these incidents of, of uh, police shootings, for example, but they've always happened. And now people of color have a voice to protest it. So it's much more evident. And sometimes that feel the same thing that women are reporting sexual assault much more, not because it's more now. It's just that they are actually reporting it. So I think that there's uh, this kind of sense of everything is awful, but it's also because we maybe we're paying more attention to it, but also, you know, that that's what's being shown and we've been fed all the time. But there's a lot of positive things that are happening. And I think that yeah, we're doing ourselves a little bit of a disservice by ignoring that. I mean, we shouldn't be clueless about the challenges, uh, but, you know, just also remember that there's good stuff happening. Definitely. And we have really, really come a long way. Um, I also wanted to talk to you more specifically about women. You have been outspoken about the role of women in peace and disarmament uh, and feminism more generally. The need to really include women at all levels of decision making in order to ensure equitable outcomes. Uh, You work in a field that is more so than many others very heavily male dominated. How have you personally worked through the challenges presented to you as a woman working in rooms and spaces where women, for the most part, have been absent and not welcome? And why do you think it's so important to have representation, not just in terms of gender, but really a more inclusive lens when we make decisions about the future? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I don't think that women are inherently more peaceful than men. But obviously, we've been given roles in society that has certain priorities, like caretakers, uh, you know, having the main responsibility for children, for education, for healthcare, for sort of building communities and holding communities together. And that just means that we have different uh, a different perspective than men who don't get trained into those things. Um, and that perspective is necessary if we want to achieve security and peace for everyone. You can't just ignore um, half of the world's perspective <laughs> so, um, if you want to have a solution that works for everyone. And I think that you know, we see very... I think there's, there's definitely a need to, to do some sort of gender analysis, not just to have more women, but also think about well, what kind of qualities we, we value in the world. Very often, sort of the masculine traits, the aggressiveness, forceful, take what you want, dominance is seen as strength. Whereas the kind of more feminine qualities, uh, negotiations, compromise, uh, finding sort of solutions that work for both parties, uh, caring about others, um, sharing resources, that's seen as weakness. And in particular in weapons conversations, you know, you have this kind of inherent view that disarming, giving weapons up is weak. That you lose strength by giving up weapons. And I think that that needs to be challenged because what we know in communities is that more weapons do not make us safer. It's the opposite. Uh, What makes us safe is 
investments in healthcare, investments in um, uh, education, and and that kind of stuff is the actual real, like uh, realist security hard issues, not soft issues. You know, but you even have this kind of you know hard security, soft security. Definitely, and I think it's very challenging because it's become ingrained when we think about security at the international level. We have come to understand nuclear weapons as a cornerstone of what keeps the world, quote unquote, secure. Uh, We know, however, that this is not at all the reality. Um, It's not what we know from the science and the data. A lot of that happens with climate change and energy systems, too, right? That when we think about our reliance on fossil fuels, uh, that they make us energy secure. And so we need to continue to use them even though we know that a different future is also possible and feasible. How do you deal with this form of almost cognitive dissonance from people and begin to shift the message? Well, I mean, it, it's extremely challenging, like, and, and we haven't yet kind of cracked that. Uh, I think a lot of times what my frustration is that, you know, it's, it's so gendered, like you even have to... What proponents of nuclear weapons like? What you want to do? You want to make us weak? You want to castrate us? Like so, so, so gendered like language um, that it's it's very hard. I think having more women in power is definitely going to help. Not that every like because women are of course conditioned to this like as well. So you know women uh, who are let in and put in power they kind of have to mimic these masculine traits and priorities uh, but the more women we have and the more people of color and, and regional diversity the more that's going to change i think it's not going to go automatically just that you have a female prime minister and she's going to want to get rid of nuclear weapons i mean that's not how it works but the more women that are in power and the more uh, diversity you have, the more you're going to create space for different views. Um, but I think we have to really challenge the, the kind of masculine, this idea that weapons equal strength. Uh, if you look at the most secure and safe countries, it's the countries with very high social welfare standards in terms of education and healthcare. It's the Scandinavian countries, the New Zealands, the Canadas, you know, that kind of countries that invest in these things. How come we can't accept that as a fact? The, the countries that invest the most in weapons, of course, United States, but also countries like Saudi Arabia, I mean, they are not safe and secure. They are not countries that are where the population feels safe. And they're not thriving in the ways that really matter, right? Or investing really in people. Exactly. So if, if you, you know, and, and you, can, you can see the same thing with um, uh, weapons in the United States. I mean, it's not just nuclear weapons, it's all weapons, right? Uh, this idea that I need weapons to protect myself, even though all research, science, logic say if you have weapons in your home, you're more likely to get shot. Or you or your family. Yeah, we definitely struggle with this in the sense that the research and the data is there, but changing people's beliefs, values, hearts and minds is much harder than just communicating that research. Exactly. And I think that one of the things that we are talking about is that the proponents of nuclear weapons 
or you know deniers of climate change for example or proponents of you know the nra people are extremely emotional they like to portray themselves as rational they are so emotional in their arguments i feel safe with these weapons i need to i have them so i feel powerful and safe whereas the opponents of these kind of weapons are or the proponents of taking drastic action on climate change are looking at the facts and I've had these debates on, you know, I've just recently had a debate on, on Twitter where I feel like I have to archive this conversation because this is a prime example of kind of gendered way of talking about it. We had this report on the ban treaty made by a Swedish man who has no basis in facts. Like he doesn't refer to any past precedent in law. He doesn't refer to any factual evidence. He just makes a lot of guesses and sort of, you know, jumps to conclusions. And people were commending it for being very rational and very thorough. And I was dismissed when I say, well, actually, that's not how international law works. Look at these treaties and look at these facts and look at the science here. I was being dismissed as being too emotional. And it was, it was like hilarious to see. It's like he doesn't back any of his arguments up and he's just assumed to be rational and kind of sane. And I'm just emotional, even though all I do is point at this is how other treaties on weapons have worked. This is how, what happens when a nuclear bomb goes off. This is what the scientists are saying. It, it was remarkable. So I think that that's, we need to call that out. And I think that today we see people being much more, not fully, but there is a tendency that calling those things out is starting to reason with people. As we challenge inequality and prejudice and, and power dynamics in all these different forms and shapes, uh, we're also getting a little bit more receptive to hearing that you're in a privileged position and you're misusing that power. I truly could speak with you all day, but I want to be respectful of your time. So in closing, I just wanted to end on a positive note and ask what makes you hopeful about the future and, and believing that you will leave the world better than you found it? I mean, I think the world is much better well, today than it was 100 years ago. Um, I mean, I think we see, obviously, with climate change, an extremely worrying situation, but we're also, I mean, we're seeing people be much more aware and much more ready to take action. I don't think we've ever seen these many people be worried about climate change as we are right now. And that that's a positive. And I think that things are happening. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm very inspired by ourselves, <laughs> by my colleagues. You know, if we could, you know, without almost any money, um, if we could just do this, a bunch of people, and yes, we have, you know, members in 100 countries, but to be honest, maybe it's 150 people that work actively with this around the world. It's not that many in ICANN. You know, we, would, we love to promote ourselves as a giant global, but maybe 150 people that work with this. If we can manage to do this with no resources, imagine what we could do if we really mobilized. So, and I think that people are, you know, getting sort of awakening. I, I have a lot of faith also in the new generation. A lot of people complain about young people not being interested in things, but I, I see the complete opposite. The generation growing up now is so interested in the world, so connected to other parts of the world. There's no us versus them. It's you know, they, they've grown up in a globalized, they're born into a globalized society. 
where borders don't matter so much. So I think that there is a much more, and, and they can see the other side of the world very quickly on social media, on live TV, for example, on uh, YouTube. They can connect with people and they are, they want to have meaningful, they want to do something meaningful. There's a huge strive, I think, with people today to talk to university students. Everyone wants to work with something meaningful. Nobody wants to just, and even if they work, if even if they go into banking, they are asking the banks that they're going to work for, what's your sustainable development policies? What do you do about this? What do you do about this? People want to feel meaning. Beatrice, thank you very much for your time, for your work and your passion, your leadership. Um, I look forward to seeing all the wonderful things the future holds for you and for ICANN. Thank you very much. It's great talking to you. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this conversation valuable, please share it with friends and colleagues. And don't forget to give us a rating wherever you're listening. See you next week.